0: Hello folks and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to your farm. So in this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Brian Barris of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, who works in Lethbridge, Alberta. He's an agronomy expert and has conducted many research projects in Western Canada looking into agronomic practices of wheat, both spring wheat and winter wheat. So in this podcast, we delve pretty deep into some of the best management practices for seeding and managing winter wheat. We get into moisture conditions, seeding rates, dates, uh, seeding depths. We also talk a little bit about seed treatments and nitrogen forms and timing. We also get a little bit into some of the new varieties that have been put out by Rob Graff. So sit back and enjoy. Brian is always a wealth of information and has great insights into getting the most out of your winter wheat. Hey Brian, thanks for joining me today. Oh, always my pleasure, Jeremy. So this time you're actually joining me from Saskatoon where you're at the International Wheat Congress. So, so maybe for those who don't know, um, what is this and, and how are you involved? So the, the Wheat Congress, this is the first one, and
1: it evolved from um, the uh, International Wheat Genomics Symposium. And I think the idea was to broaden out and make it more cross-disciplinary because at an international level um particularly as it pertains to wheat and we now have you know an international organization like the Wheat Initiative there's a lot of momentum building around more cooperation less duplication um and optimizing resources for funding and so that that alone and yeah and and with that you know as much as possible you know cross disciplinary approaches to to the research, and so I think this was a natural evolution to like broaden the scope of conference so that everybody from applied, you know, wheat research all the way up to upstream is is participating, interacting, and so on.
0: So it sounds like uh, something that could, you know, in the in the long term, really benefit some of the uh, Western Canadian producers of of wheat.
1: Yeah, you know, it really does because I think what you know some producers are aware of you know, through conversations that I've had with them, but, you know, this might be at an international level, but, you know, we've, we've you know, a big part of my role here has been agronomy expert working group for the Weed Initiative, and with that, we've had stakeholders, you were there, um, we had funders there, and we had an international group attending, and, and those objectives we're working on aligned to national objectives within Canada, and our grower commissions align their priorities quite closely to those. So there's a real alignment all the way down to what I believe is the farm gate for um, getting the type of research that's needed that you know that's relevant to the to the farmer at the farm level, but also feeds up international international objective around where those research gaps are for wheat.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing what comes of this. I know we have a few people um, at the Congress this week, so I'm I'm interested to see what comes of it. But I want to get into the meat and potatoes of what we wanted to chat about today, which is winter wheat um, and... Let's be honest, the winter wheat acres in Western Canada and Alberta have fluctuated greatly over the past few years. I mean, if you look at the numbers over the last 10 years, it's gone up and down quite a lot. Um, is, it, is there something that you see, why, why we see such a fluctuation in, in acres in Western Canada?
1: Well, I, you know, I, think, I think there's two things around that. One is perception. Um, so from a grower perspective, Perceptions and, and like I've said, the perception doesn't have to be doesn't have to be a real perception. A perception is a belief, part of a belief system around what's driving decisions at the farm gate. and and some growers may feel you know a range of attitudes towards winter wheat. like I can't fit that operation in amongst all my spring annual crops that are you know that are dictating. Operational needs and whatnot at a certain time of year. So, for example, I don't want to grow, I don't want to be bothered with planting winter wheat when I'm harvesting peas or something like that, or or some of the early crops that are coming off, um, when in reality, there's there's a lot of farmers that do. So they, they might be planting with, their, you know, let's face it, all planting rigs are very big now, so they can get a lot of acres covered in the morning when the crop's still too tough to combine and then head out. And proceed with harvesting after I have two units uh, with the size of some of these operations today. Um, the other side to it though is real and I think it's a marketing conundrum that we're in. Um, we've always sort of viewed and when I say we the grain industry has kind of viewed it as sort of a um, you know second place to say Canada Prairie Spring or something like that and it's always regardless of my mind of quality it's always been priced a little bit lower and let's face it that's kind of a disincentive too and so so then you get this chicken and egg thing where you know some of the elevators may not even necessarily have the space or want to deal with the winter wheat um, and a grower may not want to deal with the logistics of trying to move that as far as they may need to um, depending on where they are and so there's a lot of this going on and I think I think we're going to challenge that a little bit going forward because I think where Dr. Rob Graff is is taking winter wheat is to a quality level that we've never seen before in winter wheat. And I think it would be nice for us um, to someday maybe adopt the Australian model where they really don't care whether it's a spring or a winter type. It's all about the quality profile and they'll just they'll just dump that stuff all together and blend it together and let's face it that's eventually what happens with the winter wheat anyway it's blended off with in a lot of cases back in with spring wheat so a lot of challenges it's you know the acre it's frustrating for all of us to work with winter wheat where we see that acreage we think it'll was finally going to hold at a million and a half acres and then it drops back down for various reasons so it's it's um it's definitely a, a conundrum and then the last piece is just you know, we've solved a lot of issues with winter wheat. So our last piece on the research side is really just the integration of making sure we can fit it into, you know, a cropping system. And it's not easy because it's a cropping system dominated by spring you know, crops and it's a winter growth habit. So it's it's a different beast, for sure.
0: So maybe jumping off of that, trying to integrate it into a spring-dominant system, um, there's been a decent amount of research going into to stubble options and what are the best stubble options to potentially put, uh, to seed winter wheat into. And historically, we've seen canola, stubble be uh, probably one of the best options um to seed winter wheat into, however as our our canola varieties grow in in season length as the yields go up of those of those canola varieties and they take up more time in the season, the availability the availability to put winter wheat in after canola is becoming challenged um but we've we've seen some recent research where maybe it's not the only option
1: oh for sure i think um um we've got enough data there now that you know a, a nice stuff- Byron irvine a few years ago several years ago now that we published in 2012 nicely showed that um you know uh, you know winter yields um planted on various stubbles um and this was a project that was growing all over western canada they you know we 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 were able to show that canola is is you know pea stubble, which we weren't sure about, actually provided exactly the same yields. Um, and, and although not as widely available, a, in certain places, this is an option as well. As, uh, barley silage stubble was also equal to that. So your, your pulse stubbles, even though they kinda, you know, they don't really align to the whole idea of, of stubble for trapping snow, um, they do provide a benefit um, and and nothing that we see is too negative, and and that's tested as far north as up in the Peace area, where I know of growers that are growing their winter wheat after peas, on double after peas, and and then doing it successfully. So there there are other options, and we're you know we're we're also conducting a study right now. Where we're sort of broadening that out to a range of different stubbles from anywhere from soybean to flax and everything in between, including oats stubble to see. what response is, is, you know, provides the greatest magnitude of change, positive change for winter wheat yields. Um, Following you know these various break crops that precede the planting of the winter wheat. So it
0: sounds like uh, as pea stubble and, and silage barley, it's not just limited to maybe regions in, in southern Alberta. It can be implemented in in regions in the north as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean you know we've got pulses and we we want to see pulses growing widely. Um, they fluctuate a little bit too depending on markets, but we we know the importance of that. We know you know not only the stubble um option but you know peas depending on where the weed is in that phase i mean those peas are releasing 30 percent you know converting 30 percent to available in every each year and so um very valuable for soil health good for the winter wheat crop so it's it's provided there's no marketing issues around that whole double leg peas i mean it's 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 a perfect fit
0: leading maybe into that a little bit i want to talk about um seeding dates and obviously the seeding seeding timing is coming up rather quickly um middle of august to middle of september for for part northern parts of the province and then into late september for maybe other parts uh, the southern parts of the province what happens if we extend past that ideal timing zone um is is it still feasible to put in winter wheat after that um and and if so what what kind of consideration should we be looking at to make sure we are still getting a successful crop
1: yeah there's a lot of components to that so the first thing is you know and then whether or not we're talking about spring wheat or winter wheat i think we have this um obsession with a certain planting date um and and throwing all other you know um climatic variables out the window but what what we know, and we're kind of spoiled in southern Alberta, we can plant well into October and not have an issue and always could, but we've kind of encouraged growers, you know, better to, like, get it in early, sort of regardless of soil moisture, because we know the moisture will eventually come, um, and, and certainly we don't want them planting too moisture like you might be tempted to with a spring cereal, but we just want that crop planted in, you know, three-quarters of an inch deep, Um, into a decent stubble and you know where we are um, you know that 7th to the 10th of September is ideal a week to 10 days earlier in some of the shorter seasons in the more northerly areas but you know we we completed a study that um, Dr. Vaughn Lawley led where uh, we actually grew it grew winter wheat all over the prairies and actually what we observed there was you know Many, many of the sites um in all three provinces, actually, you could get away with planting later than that. And so well into late September, you're still going to be you know fairly successful. In fact, one of the planting dates was even November first, and that created issues around stability of the yield, so you know quite variable from year to year. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily want anybody doing that, but that just shows you that you know late October um, according to the data set they had wasn't even that bad. So, you know, missing out on, you know, a week out of that ideal window of whether it's August thirtieth in your area or September tenth into some of the southern parts of the prairies isn't the end of the world. And and then what we also know from the work that we've done is like we're we have a stronger crop in terms of resistance to abiotic stress because of you know the work that we've done on seed treatments and so we're really advocating strong as growers be using a, a dual fungicide insecticide. And I've said it a million times probably, but it's not so much the interest around what it will do on the biotic side in terms of um, soil pathogens or, or soil borne insects. It's actually the change it does to the metabolic pathways in that crop, such that it's more resistant to abiotic stress. So we see significantly more plants in the field with the seed treatment and of course that's going to lend itself very well to optimal stand establishment which is what you want in the fall
0: it's it's interesting um, you bring up the seed treatments because I was actually poking through your research on seed size seeding rate and seed treatments and stability of the system in that how 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 can we maintain stability of yield off off after multiple years? Um, and there was kind of an interesting relationship between seeding rate and go and going maybe between um, rather than going 200 seeds per meter squared, going up and around 400 seeds per meter squared. Um, and then comparing that to, to seed treatment um, and seed treatment provided quite a bit of stability. Um, but, Really only when it did help with the higher seeding rate, but but it really helped it with that lower seeding rate um, Where if you're going at the 200 seeds per meter squared um, And you're adding that seed treatment you're getting quite a bit of stability out of that added seed treatment But the benefit wasn't seen as strongly at 400 seeds per meter squared So should should producers be targeting a high seed seeding rate plus a seed treatment or uh, You know should it be maybe one or the other? <laughs> well, that's a really good
1: question. And a farmer friend of mine, Matt Stanford, posed that to me. He was like, "Okay, Brian, you showed us that data, so I guess I can cut my seed input cost in half and just package it with a seed treatment. I'll be just as just as well off." And <laughs> the, the data, actually, if you just strictly looked at the yield, was that was he was right. Um, but um, well, if you. Dive a little deeper into the data you you see and you shouldn't you know underscore the importance um, or dismiss the importance of that stability index because that stability index is one thing that you know you don't necessarily experience so much as a farmer because it's a year to year thing, but when we can see that variability in one year over a number of sites, you see how important it is. And so to buy yourself much more stability, by having a stronger agronomic system um, is way more preferable. It may mask slightly the importance in what's happening with that um, seed treatment, but the seed treatment, even with that stronger agronomic system is still providing greater um, crop vigor, which, which translates to better resistance to abiotic stresses, still gives you more plants, still gives you a little bit more yield um, over time. Um, but yeah, it's not as notable because now we've got this, we're starting with this stronger system. So if we told, if we tell growers that your sweet spot for planting winter wheat is 450 seeds per square meter or 45 seeds per square foot, we still want them packaging that with the seed treatment and doing a lot of other practices that, that, that make it as strong as possible because you know, we we can't predict necessarily what that winter wheat crop is going to face, but we know there's going to be at some point, whether it's in the fall or the spring, there's going to be some probably nasty abiotic stresses at some point. And winter wheat, you know, the tough thing about winter wheat is it has to be strong because it's going to get possibly beat up in the fall. You know, it stays in that vegetative state for an extremely long time compared to spring wheat. And so it's exposed to a lot of stresses and so the stronger we can make the system the better that's going to translate into higher yields
0: all right we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break but we will be right back
2: do you yearn for the days of flower power tie-dye shirts and bell bottoms channel your free spirit and join the alberta wheat commission for wheatstock one day of peace and wheat located in the open fields of TP Creek on August 8th. Hear from agronomy and research headliners, including Jennifer Otani, Dean Spanner, and Kelly Turkington. The first 50 registrations will receive a pair of our famous wheat socks. For more information and to register, go to albertawheat.com. Peace, love, and wheat. It would be interesting
0: to see um, how those stability uh, factors relate to to stubble, um, what what stubble we're putting it into, um, you know, is is that is it stronger in, in in canola stubble or is it stronger in pea stubble or maybe it's not as noticeable in in silage barley stubble? Um, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I can't recall if we did much in the way of stability indexes with uh, with Byron's data set or not, but um, the study we we've just initiated we'll be able to answer that question, at least when it comes to um, those range of stubbles that we'll be using. Not necessarily, I don't, we're not going to be looking at barley silage stubble just because it's, um, you know, it's a very, very focused kind of a stubble that wouldn't be readily available across the prairies, but all the other stubbles will definitely be able to provide everyone with a, you know, with that, extra facet, which is always nice to be able to do with your yield data, you know, because really as an agronomist, it's, of course, we're, we're yield driven a lot by what we're looking for, but that stability facet and peace. Um, we'd be very remiss if we ignored it.
0: It's a it's, a, it's a pretty interesting topic and, and I'm sure we could spend an entire podcast talk, talking about stability. Um, it's a, It seems to be something that we consistently seem to be searching for in our management practices. Are we getting consistent yields? Um, are we consistently increasing our yields? Even if we do have biotic or abiotic pressure, can we maintain um, a, a low variance in, in how much our yields are going up and down during those stresses and, and if we can maintain those, um, then the stability of our system and the stability of the farming is a little bit, is a little bit better. However, we know um, it doesn't always come down to just stability. there is, there is that price factor that, that comes into it and, and um, 400 or 450 seeds per meter squared. Uh, it can be a, a challenging a challenging price to look at. but if we're looking at economic or, or, or yield stability and crop stability, um, the value could potentially be there. Um, exactly. so, so I want to um, kind of jump off from there. And you did a lot of research on nitrogen forms and timing, um, looking at urea, looking at UAN, um, some of the enhanced inf- efficiency fertilizers like AgriTain and super U, ESN, um, and the timings of those and how you're applying them and how that relates to yield and, again, stability of that system over the long term. Um, so maybe general, what what did we see from, from these trials?
1: I guess to break it up into a few different pieces, first of all, it would relate to the seeding system. So what kind of equipment is the producer using? So if we go back 10, 20 years, a lot of systems were single shoot. In other words, both the seed and fertilizer had to run down the same same uh, hose and, and, and possibly even come out the same boot jack. So what did that mean? Well, that meant, complications around fertilizer. So guys were either floating fertilizer on ahead or banding it ahead, what have you. Um, because the idea there was that you couldn't put a lot down near the seed, obviously, or you'd get seedling toxicity. But your your environmentally smart nitrogen, the ESN, that polymer coated urea, has been a fantastic innovation for seed safety. And and we've done a lot of work on that around that particular product and, and the handling of it. You know, there there are some cautions you have to take with it because you don't want to fracture that that um that polymer coating. But generally speaking, you won't observe too much of that and and what it provides, you know, near the seed is is tremendous. And so growers that are still single shooting and want to put down, you know, three times the the normal safe rate would be fine doing so. Um, and so that means you can be pushing, you know, at, going at least 90 kilograms of, of of nitrogen per hectare, versus 30. So imagine, you know, what that offers. And 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 then so then the next question with that product is so what happens if I seed safety is not an issue and and the work that we've done showed that if you're if you're if you're side banding that and hoping to get sort of a delayed effect. That might translate into feeding the crop a little bit later in the stage, or would it, you know, even delay it and provide something, you know, in the reproductive phase that might translate into protein. Um, you don't need to go 100% ESN um, in a sideband situation. You could, you can, you know, dilute that off so that you're running a ratio of, of you know, one to one of ESN and and uncoated urea. So that so that piece is. Is a little bit unique now. If you're if you're thinking about splitting your applications, there's there's work that we've done there that's that's sort of a multi-step thing as far as decision making. So producers that particularly if we're talking sort of medium to medium low production environments in terms of what your yield estimate is, you're 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 absolutely fine just putting all your fertilizer down at planting, and because we don't see huge advantages with with top dressing, but if you're conversely you know if, if it's either strictly just around logistics you don't want to handle as much fertilizer definitely you could put you know 30 percent of your total nitrogen down at planting and then decide in the spring how much you want to put down and when where that becomes sort of more than just a logistical consideration but but getting a biological response out of the crop is when we're into sort of those medium to high to high production environments where we really see a good response to split applications we also see in those situations where your products that have some enhanced efficiency so you're not losing that nitrogen we see that as a benefit and paying for itself in a split application so if you're top dressing with an agritain or a or a, um, a super u for example those are the type of products that we looked at in our first trial at first project that that uh, seem to give a nice response in a split situation. So, it, so again, it's a consideration not of just timing, but what's my yield potential going to be? And if I'm, if I'm up in that, you know, really pushing my system and, and getting, you know, predicting that I'm going to get a high productive scenario, that's when, you know, the consideration around enhanced efficiency fertilizers and split applications really, really is worth some, some lengthy consideration.
0: So when you when you say medium to low being not as beneficial for those split applications and then medium, high to high being beneficial, what, what kind of bushel ranges are we talking about for yield?
1: I think growers could probably answer that better than me, but I would consider, you know, moderate to moderate low would be in that range of, you know, forty to sixty, and then if you're getting sixty plus you know moderate now you're getting into moderate high at your 85 to 100 plus being your high so you know and but and that depends on what what's the comfort zone of that particular producer is as he weighs it against all the other input costs that he's that he's um incorporated into his cropping system you have to yeah everybody's going to possibly have a different definition for benefit. so from our 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 definition it was you're not losing out, you're not you know, compared to split applications if you if you have to band all your product in fall. Um but you might start seeing, you know, yield advantages, you know, with split applications once you especially when you're into that eighty plus bushel and acre type
2: scenario.
0: Yeah, it's it it sounds like um the, the The ability to um, be flexible with your nitrogen application for winter wheat in Western Canada is is there. Um, If you you want to distribute some of that risk in terms of of, um, nitrogen purchasing and placement in the soil, um, displacing 50% of it into the spring um, is not going to have a massive impact or, or, or really any impact on your yield. Um, but you actually, within that f- spring application of either Agritain, UAN, Super U, or, or Urea, um, you actually had three different timings in there, early spring, mid-spring, and late spring. Um, and there wasn't really too much of a yield difference, if I, if I remember correctly, in terms of, of uh, those different timings, which creates more flexibility.
1: That's right. And so I think as long as, you know, and it depends how technically savvy um, the grower um, is and the kind of equipment they have available. But, you know, you could get, you know, readily available type tissue testing or uh, in crop um, sensors that are looking at optical sensors that are looking at the amount of green that you have. And I mean, even eyeballing it you know as a starting point too but as long you know if you're applying your nitrogen during that vegetative state of that crop um starting at say a you know a growth stage of say feeks four and up to and remaining in that vegetative state you're yeah you you probably are are okay the the longer you wait the more you know you risk not fulfilling all the n requirements for yield so you could possibly take a hit on yield if you waited too long and we're only applying in the reproductive phase of the crop um, because then that's likely going to be partitioned up into um, protein and we all know that inverse relationship between yield and protein so um, generally speaking you have to meet your end requirements for yield first and then If there's insufficiency there and you're applying a little bit more later on, you should be able to realize a little bit greater gains around proteins.
0: And uh, just just for reference, Feeks4 would be right in around the beginning of that stem elongation timing. Um, but then obviously if we push a little bit past that then we um, we come at risk of obviously trampling a little bit more of the crop if, if that's something you're trying to prevent but it really depends on that system. Um, I also wanted to maybe bring up UAN a little bit because it seemed to be one of those products that really dragged in terms of its benefit of use. Um, what what did you guys see in that trial? Growers
1: would know that better than anybody. Is like it, it's very very dependent on the environment so you can have st- You can have situations where um uan depending on how you apply it you could lose a lot of it through volatilization or in our case we were even doing some banding of it into the soil and we definitely lost some that way and so to us you know the message there was like you know if there's one you know if there's one form which is fairly volatile it's uan and so if it's if it is like that and the conditions are conducive to loss, then obviously that you would probably realize some pretty terrific benefit versus the, the relatively cheap input cost of, of having the urease inhibitor, um, as part of that UAN package. And so I would, I would certainly recommend, you know, for the added cost and what it gains you in terms of mitigating loss of, of definitely going with, with a uh, urease inhibitor in in a UAN situation, and UAN is like, you know, ask your growers. I mean, UAN is is a popular way of applying N as well. And some some really progressive growers in in our area, of southern Alberta. I mean, they're going in two three times with. Um, split applications of UAN. So they're really fine tuning their end management practices that way.
0: All right, it is commercial break time, but we will be right back.
2: Farm Cash. It's easier than ever. The Farm Cash Cash Advance Program offers up to $1 million with $100,000 interest free on all commodities and $500,000 on canola advances to help simplify your cash flow and maximize your margins. Our new online application accepts e signatures, automatically calculates your loan, and includes a document upload feature it's never been easier to apply. Advances are available on over 50 agriculture commodities, including all major crops, honey, and livestock. To apply or to learn more, visit farmcashadvance.com today for more details. The Alberta Wheat Commission is the official administrator of Farm Cash under Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Advanced Payments Program.
0: What we've talked about now, we've got the seed in the ground, um, seed treated, the right rate, um, the right date, um, should we be concerned about how much moisture is in the ground when we're seeding? Should we be waiting for moisture and should we be digging for moisture?
1: The short answer is, is no. There, there's flexibility there. I mean, if, you know, you can be, you know, thinking about, okay, what's, what's my seven-day forecast and, you know, what's that look like in terms of my seeding window? Is my seeding window starting to close on me? And, and what we would certainly say is, if, you, if the window's starting to close, um, you've probably waited as long as you want to. Because generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, you don't chase moisture with with uh, your your seeding depths with winter wheat because it has quite a short coleoptile relative to spring wheat. And if you get that thing that seed too far, it just doesn't have the horsepower to push through like a spring wheat does. And so we don't want to like shoot ourselves in the foot. Right from the outset, by planting too deep because we thought we needed to go to moisture, so no you don't you don't need it. you certainly can wait it out a little bit. Uh, I know we we do that a lot in southern Alberta, speaking for a lot of growers, I know, but that also is the case that they can afford to because we can successfully plant winter week through into the end of September at at least, and we see we see some, some decent success into October, so little bit more luxury there, so further north that window would be a little bit shorter. But you could wait it out a little bit, but um, not necessary for sure.
0: Okay, so I guess that leads me into varieties. Um, Rob Graf has been putting out some wonderful varieties. He's been working hard on bringing up the quality of of our winter wheat in Western Canada, um, and he's he's saying we're at we're at CPS quality right now. What have, what are you seeing with with some of Rob Graf's uh, new varieties being put out?
1: Yeah, I think. You know there's been a really really nice evolution to where you know we can deliver to growers now i think you know updated genetics that you know offer us good yield potential and very good yield potential for that matter and now we can couple that with updated management practices so you get this real nice synergy of you know the genetics by the environment by the management this whole g by e by m thing that we that we talk about as a as a catchphrase and so there's a nice system now and and uh there's been a nice progression um and and you know breeders breeders don't you know they don't um they don't hit that sweet spot every time but i think when you look at some of the stuff rob's delivered lately particularly with the latest release of wildfire that's a very very nice line that's going to give us improved yield i think for the most part in most environments it's going to give us some standability and then you know a weakness related to stem rust i think that thing could be growing quite widely so producers in every province particularly alberta and saskatchewan would probably be wanting to get their hands on on at least some of that and try it out and the other thing i'd recommend to growers you know like yeah, you can fine tune your genetics even further by you know try out a couple of varieties. You know, get a few mini bulks of each and see how it goes. And and try that not just one time in one place, but you know see if you could split it off into a couple fields over a couple years and see what is the what is the variety that couples best with your management and the environment in which. Your farm is situated.
0: It's. Uh, I mean, we, we hear about the benefits of of winter wheat in the Western Canada rotation. Um, I mean, increasing, adding another crop into that rotation is always beneficial um, to spread out some of those broad leaves. Um, we're able to capture some fall moisture and some spring moisture better than potentially um, spring wheat could. Although, if we're doing our ultra early seeding with some of the spring wheat, hopefully we're catching some of that moisture as well. Um, we're looking at potentially high yields, so maybe in the range of fifteen to 40% higher with, with winter wheat over spring wheat. Um, and, and maybe some distribution of work if, if we're moving some of that seeding into the fall, um, if that works for your operation rather than having it in the spring, um, increased weed competitiveness. So if you're dealing with, um, if you're putting winter weed in, you're going to have a better competitive crop against weeds in the long run. So hopefully bringing down some of that weed pressure, maybe bringing down some of the chance of resistance, um, reduce soil erosion. I mean the list kind of goes on. Um, yet we still seem to have the acres fluctuating. Um, so, is this is this crop a benefit from your from your perspective to the Western Canadian system? Should we be seeing more of it? In
1: yeah, I, I think so. I think you know, and everybody's got their good reasons why maybe they haven't fully embraced it from the grower to the retailer to the seed company to the uh, to the grain merchant as to why they may may not make it a priority over over a a spring class of wheat and that so that's not a that's not a criticism of anybody but i think i think moving forward we might look back at this time and think you know there was maybe some missed opportunities with with not pushing it a little bit harder in that direction another good example of of a benefit that we can't quantify as researchers but just simply you know The scale of farming is increasing so much the capital costs are just you know out of this world and when it comes to some of this equipment so the fact that you could actually you know keep your capital costs down um the amount you're investing in steel down because you split your operations up enough that you can get get away with a little bit smaller scale drill or maybe that even extends to some of the other equipment but i think That that's that's to me that's outside the agronomics, the marketing, and the ecological benefits. To me, some of those economic, you know, realities around things like that, I think are 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 probably overlooked a bit too. So I think, you know, depending on, you know, depending on how, you know, the long term climate changes of the prairies are, I think it's either going to one of two things are going to happen. I think with winter wheat, you're either going to see an explosion because the adapt the 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 winter growth habit lends itself better to sinking in with the environmental realities that we may be experiencing or you know we're going to have to adapt our our spring annual crops in a way that you know almost mimic it and that's why we you know we're we're having so much success with ultra early spring wheat seeding systems is because it's something that lends itself well to that um so yeah, I'll always be a cheerleader of winter wheat, though. So I, I'm hoping that it that it bounces back and then experiences some stability for everyone.
0: Well, awesome. I I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today, Brian. Is there any last thoughts or last comments you want to say before we uh, before we end?
1: Well, no. Other than a, uh, you know, we we've experienced some some pretty variable weather the last two years. So I'm just wishing all the growers much success this summer and this fall. Either with your spring, your spring operation or your winter operation. Um, the chances are there, but uh, um, we're a resilient community, so um, wishing all the wheat growers much success.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you, Brian, and enjoy the rest of your week at the International Wheat Congress, and I'm sure we'll chat soon.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Wish you are here. Buy me beer, buddy.
0: <laughs> One of these days.
1: <laughs> Bye, Brian. All right.
0: Thanks for listening to the Growing Point podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate and review it and share it with your friends. Assuming you have friends, again, we won't hold it against you if you don't. This helps us grow and helps us get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to albertowheat or albertobarley.com and sign up on our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we provide and share through articles, interviews, and newsletters. We'll see you next time.